so you're in this position where you're scared, everybody's scared for you, you don't have enough money. I mean, there's really no reason to do it except this dream that it could work. Hi everyone, before jumping into today's episode with Dinah Trout, I wanted to share two quick things with you. Number one, I'm so grateful for everybody who's been listening and reaching out to me. If you wanna say hi, or if you have any feedback on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. You can reach out to me at yasmin at behindherempire.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, it would really mean the world to me if you'd consider leaving a review. Reviews help our podcast get discovered and build trust with new listeners. And number two, today's interview has a few curse words. So if you have little ones around, I would highly recommend putting on some headphones. Thanks so much for listening. And we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, everyone, I'm Yasmin Nouri, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Dinah Trout, to our show today. Dinah is a CEO and co-founder of HealthAid, one of the most successful and delicious kombucha drinks on the market. Dinah started HealthAid in 2012 alongside her husband and best friend. Although she has two master's degrees and was going up the ranks in corporate America, she felt less fulfilled as time went on and had the desire to build a company on her own terms. She eventually quit her job and took the risk with minimal savings to develop and build the best tasting, highest quality kombucha there is. Fast forward to today, HealthAid has grown from a small production item that was started in Dinah's closet with only $600 to now the fastest growing brand in the category, generating over 150 million in revenue across 30,000 stores. When she's not giving her heart and soul to HealthAid, she's fully dedicated to her two young boys who she credits have helped make her an even better CEO. Welcome to the show, Dinah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We're so excited to have you and congrats on your latest product launch, the organic soda. That seems like an amazing addition to your kombucha, which I'm a big fan of. So I can't wait to check it out. So I'd love to start from the beginning. I actually came across an article that you had with Well and Good where you briefly talked about why difficult kids make great leaders. I'd love to hear more about how you were as a kid and how you think it primed you to really be the entrepreneurial leader that you are today. (laughs) Well, I don't know if all, all difficult kids become strong leaders, but I think there's possibility in that. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just always pushed the rules. I think um, I was always, you know, really just pushing, pushing the rules, not afraid to break them, challenging them, um, you know, not not really the conventional person, even as a kid. And um, always wanted to, for me, always wanted to achieve and be the best. And I think that the thing that made that difficult, uh, you know, probably, I guess my parents would answer to that, but I think that made me a difficult kid a bit because, you know, I'm just one of those annoying kids that always asks why and doesn't really stop unless I get a good enough reason and pretty much broke rules. And so I think that was really challenging for my parents. Today, I see that sort of same trait, but it's played out in a much um, more constructive way. Um, where that sort of like confidence to stand outside of the norm, 
is actually an asset or I guess a gift. And then at the same time, like the breaking of the rules, I guess is sort of similar. Like, you know, I don't know, a bunch of people telling you something's not a good idea is pretty much the beginning of, of any start to a business. And um, it's almost like the price you have to pay is to like go figure out if you're right and they're wrong. Um, so yeah, I think also from, you know, I just think that that energy when it's constructively kind of directed um, in adulthood uh, can, can go very good, can go very well for a person. I do think it started when I was a young girl. Absolutely. It seemed like you were a very curious child, always asking questions and breaking the rules. And when I was actually reading another interview that you did, you mentioned how you felt like you lost your passion and inner leader that you had within you when you became a young adult. And on paper, you were incredibly successful. You were going up the ranks and getting paid well in a corporate job, and you had two master's degrees under your belt. How did you rediscover that inner child in you and that inner calling, which eventually led you to jump ship and start your own business? Yeah. It is true that I lost that a little bit. Um, yeah, so, you know, as I got a little bit older um, and I started to learn what I was good at and there's the positive feedback you get when you're good at something and you can easily sort of forget to look and check into whether you love what you're doing and it's not just that you're good at it. Um, so I kind of naturally fell into this path of um, science and... Uh, medicine, while it was an interest of mine, m more it was sort of very um, uh, encouraged, I would say, by my parents to, uh, you know, go get my PhD and continue down the very secure path of, you know, a 30 plus year job at a university or something like that. So I was sort of on that path and, you know, you asked how did the calling come? It, it was sort of slow and it wasn't some sort of epiphany that came down from the sky in a clear message. Um, it was much more slow and over a five-year period just grew and it was the feeling of just unfulfillment, just despite the fact that there were parts in my life that I was, you know, doing well at, like, you know, working out, cooking, having a good friend and support system. Like, there's a lot positive in my life. I was still feeling very, very much like something was lacking. And, and the way I would describe it for me was, was just that I really felt I had like a mark to make, um, a legacy I wanted to build, um, something I wanted to do on my own terms. And like, it wasn't, that wasn't being properly fed. Um, and so it started, I think, as just sort of an inner voice. And then it started to sort of like, you know, come out in all the ways that things come out that we bottle up, right? So it was like, you know, just feelings and then tears and frustrations. And um, that drove me to kind of seek out some executive um, slash sort of life coach type of uh, conversations. And then the more I talked about it, the more I felt it. And it just kind of grew. And over five years, it grew until we got the courage to start an entrepreneur club, uh, we being my best friend and husband and I, and uh, that's really where the idea started. But yeah, it was about five years and just sort of an inner voice that grew to feelings, that grew to speaking, that eventually grew to action. Yeah. I love hearing about your entrepreneurial club because I feel like when you're in that mindset of wanting to start something and do something, but you don't know 
what the next step is, just really talking out loud about all these ideas, even if they're bad, just kind of sparks that subconscious in you where you start looking at stuff like, okay, maybe I can start a business of this. And, you know, people might look at you and say, you know, your passion might have been kombucha, but I would love to hear the story, how you guys kind of came across really making it a business. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not really true to say my passion was kombucha. I mean, I was into food for sure. Um, I went to graduate school for nutritional biochemistry. And so it was a school of nutrition. Everybody there is into food. Um, we were cooking with it, healing with it, playing with it, sprouting it, fermenting it. That's where I learned how to make kombucha, uh, in graduate school. And it was just sort of one of the fun things I cooked on the weekend, no different than sauerkraut or, uh, you know, seeding cashews. Like we were into all kinds of stuff. So I learned how to make kombucha there, but I didn't think it was going to be like my identity 15 years later. Certainly not. Um, but I did love it and I did love probiotics and I love fermenting things. So I brought all those recipes with me to California when I moved there after school. But, uh, the true passion, I think th- the true driver of me starting health aid was the desire to build something on my own terms and a company I could, you know, be proud of and a, and a mark that I could be proud of, make a mark that I could be proud of. That was really the passion. The vehicle ended up being kombucha. And really I see the vehicle as much more than kombucha. It's health aid, which is, you know, hopefully going to be more than kombucha one day. Um, but yeah, I mean, the driver was really what the mark I wanted to make and the way we landed on kombucha. So yeah, I, I I knew about kombucha for a long time before starting the business. And like I mentioned, it was never, the concept was never, it was going to be a business. Even in our entrepreneur club, we would sip on the kombucha and eat my sauerkraut and stuff. Um, but we had no idea, uh, you know, that our, you know, solution was right in front of our noses. It took us uh, quite a few weeks before we, or I mean, maybe even a few months before we um, realized there was something there. And it wasn't even because of the reason you'd think. Um, so we came up with all kinds of ideas in the Entrepreneur Club. Again, the passion was w- what business can we create that's going to be successful and therefore we can build a company that we can be proud of around it um, was sort of the general vibe and we came up with all kinds of ideas all across the board not even <laughs> anyone you remember not even <laughs> oh yeah yeah like um so what the way we approached the meeting is if you, any problems you had that week you would you were supposed to come to the meeting with and the idea was to look through and see if any of these problems we could come up with solutions for um so it was all based on kind of me so like you know i remember one day vanessa coming to the meeting and being like you know i was really annoyed my high I have these high boots that go to my knee, like knee-high boots, and they keep slouching. And that's really annoying today. And we're like, all right, so let's see if we can figure out how to create a solution for slouching boots, you know, things like that. I mean, really not related to kombucha. So when people say, oh, kombucha was your passion, and that's obviously what you did, I'm like, well, not exactly. I mean, I, I'm into food. and But Vanessa and Justin aren't really. I mean, Vanessa is, they're both into food because they're into health and wellness just overall, but I wouldn't say they probably wouldn't name it as one of their top passions. Vanessa uh, is definitely a businesswoman. She loves food too, but um, but uh, you know Justin's a musician. So again, we came up with all kinds of ideas. Yeah, slouching boots is just one. I mean, a parking app was another. All kinds of ideas, and um, Justin ended up working for a um, an entrepreneur who was very successful um, selling a product that uh, that helped with hair loss. And apparently it didn't even work that well. 
Um, but he saw the amount that people basically just the, the distance people would go to save their hair. And he was like, there's a real opportunity. Um, and, you know, especially if we find something that works. So we, um, we started researching what would regrow hair. And we found on the internet that um, people all over the world were using the kombucha scoby or the culture for kombucha as a mask on the head to regrow hair. And so for those of you who don't know, the culture in kombucha, it's also known as a SCOBY, uh, it's got the bacteria and yeast that are good for your gut. It's got all the probiotics. And so it lives, they live in this SCOBY and you put the SCOBY on your head, uh, I guess is the idea. And that somehow that grows hair. Um, well, you get a SCOBY from a previous batch of kombucha. So the only way to get a SCOBY is either you buy it from someone who makes kombucha or you you get it from your previous batch. So like I had a ton of SCOBYs because I made kombucha all the time. Um, and then also to get an additional SCOBY, you have to make a batch of kombucha. So to make a, a SCOBY, all I had to do was make more kombucha. Um, anyway, point is I had everything I needed to make SCOBYs and we only had about 600 bucks each to put toward the project. Um so, you know, the cost of kombucha was pretty uh, appealing because it was just sugar tea and water. So anyway, we started making a ton of kombucha, but not for the liquid, just for the SCOBY. We were trying to gather these cultures and that we were going to use to test on Justin's head, who was starting to kind of lose some hair. And then we were ultimately going to save the world from baldness. That was the sort of like, you know, ultimate mission. Yeah. And we, um, we started, I started making a ton of kombucha. Again, cultivating the scobies. I didn't throw out the liquid because it was so good. I always made really high quality kombucha. So I would, I bottled it up, um, but it just really, you know, just gathered in my apartment. I, I basically had like 60 cases of kombucha just like stacking up on the walls as we made these scobies because that was where the real business was. Um, we got an opportunity to sell at a farmer's market, um, you know, kind of to make that story short, we just basically got an opportunity to sell the product at a farmer's market, but we didn't have the product yet. All I had was a bunch of SCOBYs and I hadn't even really tested it on Justin's head yet, but we needed a product fast because the market was going to open in three weeks and that was it. Like we take it or leave it. And most people would probably say, uh, no, you know, we can't sell at the farmer's market. We don't have a product yet. But we said yes, because we were like, we're not going to miss this opportunity. So we said yes before we even had a product. And that really forced us into uh, figuring it out fast. And remember, I had 60 cases of unlabeled kombucha. So we labeled it. We hand scotch tape labels on. We showed up that Sunday. And we didn't just like show up and let it sell. We were definitely like determined to make this a summer of success. Um, though I don't think at that time we realized it could be a national brand. We thought this was going to be a summer that... Uh, you know, we made some money based on kombucha and we used it to solve the real problem, which is hair loss. Um, it was it was only a month in the farmer's markets before we realized we had hit on something. Um, so we really made a pivot after that summer to put all of our effort and mind power into kombucha. And, you know, that summer Health Aid was born. And by the end of that year, we quit our jobs and we're doing Health Aid full Full steam, full storm. And what do you think, you know, I feel like a lot of people listening right now might be having side hustles and they might have that fear and insecurity to quit their job and go all in. You know, what really pushed you to kind of go across that finish line to take that risk into this new world that you always wanted? It's definitely, um, that moment is definitely one of the scariest moments. 
even to this day, it's one of the scariest moments that I look back on. At the same time, it's also one of the milestones. So when I think about the the different marquee moments at HealthAid, quitting our jobs to focus 100% on HealthAid was one of them. Um, that said, I can understand that it's a very, you know, you've got, every business is different in terms of the time to do that. So you can't really guide somebody to when the right time is. And it's all dependent on, you know, how much you spend, how much you need to live, how much you're going to get, how long it's going to take, what risk you can take, you know, all, all of that is, is really custom. So what I'll tell you is we didn't have enough money to, uh, sustain our lives, but we had enough for like the next three months. <laughs> and, um, but you know, so we, we kind of took a, we took a big risk there. Um, nobody supported the move. Like, people supported that we were doing this business and they thought it was cool and the farmer's market was blowing up and they were like, oh, look at this business. I'm going to come visit you this Sunday. Oh, here's a take a picture with Dinah and Vanessa and Justin. Um, but then when it came time to being like, okay, we're going to quit our jobs, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Like that's not a very smart move. I mean, look at the security you've built over the last five years and, um, you know, you're moving up. You just got a promotion. All the logic really did not support the jump. And I think that's part of the problem or not the problem. It's part of the challenge with quitting your job to start a business. It's that it doesn't really make logical sense. Um, and so you're in this position where you're scared. Everybody's scared for you. You don't have enough money. I mean, there's really no reason to do it except this dream that it could work. Um, and so I don't know, I guess entrepreneurs have to be a little bit crazy and take that leap. But um, we took the leap. We only had a few months. It didn't make sense. But I'll tell you that day that we came back, a few months of money, I meant, um, that day we came back to health aid and had 24 hours a day to devote to it. Because before we were basically trying to do that and our jobs and kind of doing a mediocre job at both, to be honest. I mean, health aid, health aid had definitely gotten to a point where we were like, okay, there's something here. So it wasn't like I quit my job to do this before I even knew that. I knew there was something there. I mean, we couldn't make enough kombucha. That was our biggest challenge. We couldn't make enough. Like there was plenty of opportunity to sell more. So, um, you know, I had that and then also realized, you know, I don't have the ability to give any more to it. I'm giving my max. I mean, I'm already like not sleeping. I had like just, we were just bruised and battered from working so hard in the brewery and in our jobs it was like we kind of realized at the end of that year, that first year, like, okay, something's got to give. We either have to hire somebody, which we don't have the money for, uh, or we have to quit and do this full time. Um, and because we didn't have the money to hire somebody, we quit. And it was the best move because when we came back that, I remember January 3rd, 2013, we had all of our brain power, not to mention all the fear in the world. <laughs> there was no paycheck coming. Um to really make something of ourselves. And those following three months were the most productive months of our lives. And just the time and effort and energy and we were able to apply toward health aid like helped us grow. And that year was such a significant, important year for us. Mm -hmm. So yes, it was the scariest time, but also one of the most important moves we could have made for the business. Yeah. No, that's so... And we figured out the money. I don't know how we did, but we did. Yeah, I was just going to ask. I mean, you've been very open about the early stages of a business and just how difficult it is and how lonely it could be for an entrepreneur. I'd love to hear maybe a story or a theme 
from the early days that, you know, people can resonate with who are starting businesses right now? Yeah. I mean, the money, the lack of money is real. You know, we were living on $7 a day. We being my husband and I, we had to split $7 a day. We had figured out our rent, but that was about it. Beyond that, it was seven bucks a day. Um, And that was really hard. So we were eating a lot of ramen noodle, like a lot of just soups and pastas. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what to say. Funny enough, I always had enough money to buy my, um, you know, $4 bottle of wine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Lots of kombucha. (laughs) I look back and laugh, but it was a hard time. It was really hard. I remember feeling like, what am I doing? And all my friends that I'd gone to school with, I remember I had a master's degree. I had two master's degrees. So I was already like well past college. I was like 10 years after graduating college already. And Um, so all my friends were already, you know, starting to become successful or like at least make enough money to, you know, buy their first home or like, you know, I don't know, just, I was not where they were. I couldn't even afford to get on like the Chinatown bus to, to, to New York to see them. Like it was, we were just in a different place. That was frustrating, very lonely, right? It feels lonely when you're in a place that nobody else is in, especially since you're doing something that people are like what are you doing again with that kombuki thing? You know, like, come on, Dinah, you're smarter than that. So it was a little bit like lonely because you're, you're, you don't get the support to start a business really um, until you start winning. And so until you really start winning, it's a hard push and you're usually on your own pushing. Maybe you got a few people. For sure, we had the founders and the three of us are very close. We're like a trifecta. We had each other, which was huge. Still felt lonely though, um, because you're you're also going through your own journey. Um, it's not just the journey of the business. Part of a founder's journey is also your own sort of path. You know, in the beginning, I would say a lot of my motivation was I had something to prove. I don't know to who, maybe to myself, maybe to my parents. I don't know, but I had something to prove, and that was really a lot of what drove me. Now that doesn't drive me. I don't have much to prove to anyone else. It's really shifted and that journey. And and that's been eight years for me to, you know, come to a new sort of drive, um, driver, I guess. But my point in all of that is you, you have to go through your own personal sort of discovery of what drives you and how you become better every single day at what you do. I mean, really a founder to a CEO journey is like, that of an elite athlete, I think. It really is is not too different. Um, you've got to practice and practice and practice and get better and get back on that horse. So it's hard. Yeah. And I'm sure even now the business is much larger. You're still growing as a CEO. It's never ending, right? Oh, yeah. It's never ending. It's never ending. It's a never ending sort of path of self-discovery and continuous improvement. <laughs> but yes, the person I was at the beginning of Health Aid. I have health aid to thank for getting me to this level of confidence and there's way more to go. But I know that if I didn't have this business and these experiences, I would not even be a a fourth of the woman I am. Like I just, it's in in many ways, I'm grateful to health aid for that, for that growth Um, because just, it's not a normal experience. And so you just grow from that so much, you know? 
um, I really find I, I'm really able I really think I have a level of happiness and confidence that I never would have had had I uh, you know not been forced to uh, constantly sort of work on myself. And I feel like, you know, especially in the workplace, and I'd love to get your perspective, women lack confidence, relatively speaking, to men. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's our upbringing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's just how we are as humans. But when you mention that about yourself, I mean, what's your perspective as you're hiring people and, you know, seeing women's confidence in the workplace? Uh, you know, so first of all, I was not, I mean, I think already I grew up sort of a, a confident girl. Um, so if you were to compare me against other girls, I bet you people would have used the word confident to describe me. But like compared to a guy, I think I still had a lot of room. Um, so I may have been somebody that wasn't afraid to speak up um, or whatever, but like I wasn't really confident in who I was. So um I think, um, I think I do see it all the time. I, I especially, I mean, I, I just do, and you're right. It is a generality, not all women. Some women are like so confident. I meet them and I'm like, damn, if I was like you at 25 girl, you're going <laughs> yeah. places. Yes. Yeah. You know, I love seeing that. So I don't know what, like what, you know, parents they had or upbringing they had, but a lot of times I see, especially in the new, um, the newer roles, um, just, you know, women who are, uh, you know, uh, like one thing I see is they're really trying to be polite um, and they might actually know the answer or the solution or a better way to do it, but they, they don't know how to say it because they're afraid to, um, you know, make, say something that might make somebody else uncomfortable. I find performance conversations particularly difficult for, for women more than men. Like they have a problem actually saying what somebody else is doing wrong um, I find I have to coach through, you know, and, and it's never a capability or um, expertise or knowledge issue or, you know, capability issue. I think I said that it's it's way more. They just, I don't know, aren't comfortable with the discomfort of um, of conflict. And and I think um, part of the necessary journey of a successful entrepreneur, if they're going to continue to operate a business, especially when it starts to get big, like ours, we now have. 250 employees, um, you know, that's not nowhere close to as big as something like a Google, but, um, it's, it's a real business and you, you just, you just gain a lot of confidence in, in yourself and realize how much that stuff held you back in the past. So yeah, I, I, anyway, I see it all the time. I totally agree. I don't know where it comes from, but I can tell you, I see it even at the infancy level. I have a not, I have two boys. I was really hoping for a girl because I really wanted to build a, you know, just a strong, you know, you could be whoever the fuck you want. Exactly. Um, I got two guys and I'm like, you're already going to be who the fuck you want, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But my, my sisters, I have three sisters and one of my sisters has a daughter and um, we had a kid around the same time. So we had babies at the same time. I had a boy, she had a girl. And it was really interesting to see how people respond um, and again, such a generality, not all the time. So I'm not saying this is all women, all men, but just in general, when my son would fall, it was kind of like, look at that strong boy, you know, you can get back up yourself. All right, he got up. Let's cheer him on. The girl falls and it's like, oh my God, are you okay? Oh, 
pick her up. She's crying like that. And I mean, I, I saw it and I'm like, wow, we don't even realize we're doing it. But I think that's that's an example of where it could stem or from which it could stem. And I'm sure there's a thousand million things that happen and nobody intentionally is doing that. Um, But of course we're building confidence in someone when you're like, come on, get up yourself. See, you did it. High five versus, oh my gosh, you know, the world is falling on you. So I don't know, but I see it. I totally know what you're saying. Um, And I, I try to help women through it. It's all in our head. Yeah, in our head. And I feel like even from your journey and even my own personal journey, anytime I was able to ever overcome a fear and just kind of jump into it, the confidence slowly will build up. So I still have ways yes. to go. But anytime I did something yes. difficult and I jump right in, it, I feel like once Always. I got to the other side, I'm like, oh, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> Always. In fact, when you talk to anybody that's accomplished anything great, any anything, they're more confident for it. So to your point... Maybe it doesn't matter why women have more of that um, than men, because I don't know. I mean, fixing that, for sure, we can do what we can, but that's like a big, big, big boulder. Um, the, the, almost a better thing to do is to lean into your uncertainty, lean into your discomfort. A lot of times people say things like, oh, she's fearless. And I'm like, no, 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 not at all. I'm scared all the fucking time. I cried three times today because I was scared. Um, so it's really not true. It's about leaning into it. And to your point, pushing yourself into something that's uncomfortable, that's where you see change. And anytime you change yourself, anytime you push yourself through something hard, you always come out stronger. You always come. And that's why people get wiser when they're older. It's, it's not about the number. It's about the number of experience, number and age. It's about the number of experiences, right? So yeah, I think entrepreneurship just like anything hard is going to push you to be a stronger person um, just because you're going through a tough experience. Yeah. And I love having women like you on our show who are leading big businesses and admitting, you know, I cried three times today because when I became a leader, I thought I had to fit this bucket of being stoic and just more masculine because that's been the feedback from, I was in investment banking. So from that world, but as I've kind of grown into myself and met people like you and others, it's like, we can still be leaders and, you know, be okay crying sometimes in the corner or being feminine and still being a leader. So I love hearing people like you and just seeing you be an example to a lot of women that you can be a woman and feminine and still lead a company. You can definitely be a woman and lead a company. You can be feminine and, and, and lead a company. I mean, the tears are the way I've learned to deal with my emotions. Um, well, first of all, I see my emo- I've learned to see my emotions as an, as a strength. Um, I'm actually not very emotional. I think I'm very normal. I just know how to express them. I'm very sort of like fluid with them. So my expression and tears I view as just me moving through feelings. And I'm, I have these feelings because I'm passionate. I'm not usually crying because somebody hurt my feelings. I'm crying because I care so much about something or it's complicated or it's so hard. And after I cry for a few minutes, I move on. So for me, it's a very big strength that I have as I see it now to be able to kind of move through these. And, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say I like erupt into tears at a board meeting, but that's not authentic anyway. I'm not like holding them back either. Um, They're more sort of personal, um, you know, journeys of feelings. Uh, But yes, you can be feminine. And I think there are parts of 
what we talked about earlier, like why women are a certain way, we don't know. Well, part of that is also a strength. I mean, I do feel in general, women are way more emotionally intelligent and connected to um, how people are feeling and how people are feeling impacts so much what they do and how they do it. So if we're, if we've got this special gift for whatever reason, blessing or curse, um, to be connected to how people are feeling a little bit better, that's, that's a, that's a crazy superpower if you can use that to your advantage. So I do feel that women in particular, when they become leaders, become very strong leaders because they're able to tap into both, uh, intellectual capability, um, but also emotional expertise and emotional understanding and empathy and all that stuff. So if you tap into both of those things, you're kind of like EQ, IQ on fire. Again, a lot of generalities we're making here. I have plenty of male leaders who are both, you know, very connected emotionally and intellectually, but I just think once women get there, it's almost like more get there. It's so true. I think women being more connected and more emotional and having empathy just really allows us to connect with teams and build organizations. And it could be our superpower, like you had mentioned. Ah. So I want to switch gears. I was actually listening to one of your previous interviews, and you were very open and transparent about how at one point you thought running a crazy and demanding company and being a good mom was mutually exclusive. Fast forward, you now have two beautiful and adorable sons and a high growth company. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on this topic now. Yeah. So of course, it's hard to think about how you can fit in a kid when you're working all the time and there's no time for kids, right? It doesn't make any logical sense again. But um and, and we were pretty much planning to be a family that um, Justin and I, so Justin, my co-founder is also my husband. Okay. Um, we were kind of like, well, maybe we're just not going to be a family unit that has kids because we've got health aid and that's like what we do. And um, basically we, we ended up being forced into it. Um, I'm not like a hippy dippy person, but the universe does send me sort of lessons all the time. I don't know what that's about, but I, uh, <laughs> we got in like a very bad car accident, very bad, very life threatening, should have died. Um, somehow I walked away completely unscathed. Wow. Like just, I, I just I dislocated my jaw, but it really should have been bad. We flipped a 28 foot truck on five filled with kombucha. Long story. Anyway, the point is, I don't know what happened after that, but I could stop thinking about kids. It was like, suddenly I woke up and I was like, life is short. Life is short. What am I doing? I also want to be a mom. It is what it is. Like, how am I going to do both? And I just kind of couldn't stop talking about it and thinking about it. It was like this weird thing. And Justin was like, let's do it. And so, you know, we kind of pulled the goalie, got pregnant the first time and that was it. Wow. It was like, oh, okay, this is for real now. So just like anything else in life, like we're all experiencing it with Corona right now. It whatever seems undoable, it just becomes doable. You do get through it. I don't know what to say. You just do because it's one step in front of the other and, or it's one foot in front of the other, one step in front of the other. It's just one, it's like you just figure it out. You can't do it all, but you figure out a way to make whatever you're in work. So after having a kid, it's, there's no question it's challenging and I wonder what the F I did with all my time before. I'm like, I wish I could go fast forward back and be like, or back, uh, rewind back and be like, do you even appreciate the time you have? 
I'm listening to you right now. Every woman we've interviewed says the same thing. They're like, I don't know what I did with my life before I had kids. I'm like, shoot, every minute has to be productive. <laughs> no, no, that's the thing. You can't, you can't, it's not, it doesn't work like that, right? Like think about even just how Corona has impacted us. Like you look back at your life before and you're like, I didn't realize I liked going to hike so much. You know, you can't, by definition, you can never appreciate fully what you have until it's gone. I don't know why that is. Yeah, it's true. It's you know, but, but, um, yes. So you have less time. You have to figure it out. I have all kinds of tips and stuff on how to do that. But the real high level thing is, um, you know, you, you can do both. Um, you absolutely can. It's not that you're expected to do it all though. Other things have to either come off the plate or you delegate. Like it's really that simple. I have somebody who takes care of the kids, does the laundry and cooks me dinner every night. That's how I make the CEO thing work plus being a mom. On the flip side, when I'm home with my kids, five five o'clock, like the bell rings. I'm like, I don't care what, I don't care if health aid's on fire. I'm going, I'm a mom. And so they get my undivided attention until they go to bed. If I have more work to do, it happens after eight. Um, and then the weekends are pretty sacred. So I'm like very good about setting the boundaries. Um but you can absolutely do both. You just need to recognize that not everything makes it on the boat. You know, like here's another example. I used to be a really, I mentioned I'm, I'm, I'm into food. I love food. I used to love cooking. I self-published a cookbook a long oh, time ago. Oh, you did called. have to check it out. Someone's in the kitchen with Diana. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I don't even know if you can buy it anywhere. But anyway, it was there. And I was really into food, cooked all the time, every day. It was a big part of my life. Yeah. So once I had kids and health aid, it was like, you know, I couldn't do it. And I remember having this big, difficult moment of like putting that down. And, you know, I've now come to a new place with it. I'm like, okay, it's just not the chapter where I cook every day in my life. It, it just, it just isn't. I don't know what to say. It will be again one day. And I had that for a period, but it's not that important to me that it's like top five. So I've listed out essentially what my priorities are. And I make sure I feed those priorities. And it can't just be health aid either. Um, by the way, you have to fit in there as an individual. But you can do it. You can absolutely do it. I know that if I can do it, you can do it. Um, I mean, you, the plural you. And um, and it's not that difficult. It's just a matter of carving out time for everything you care about and being really, really, really disciplined on only doing the things you care about. So no more play dates and hanging out with people you just don't care about that much. It's like you, you kind of have to limit what you do, but you can do it. Um, and I'm really happy, I would say, on the whole. And I, I live a pretty balanced life because I'm good about that discipline sort of allocation of time. Um, but the the thing that I didn't quite realize going into it, because that's kind of the easy part. That's a little bit just like getting things done. Like you car what you feed grows and what you starve dies. Like you have to just be, be very cognizant about that. The surprising thing was how how much better of a CEO I became after I, I, I had kids. And that was something I didn't expect. So um, I had a very rare position. I had sort of a very rare opportunity to be in the position of both founder or, or all the things. I was the founder, the CEO, pregnant, um, and also mom with my second kid, like all these things at once. And so I saw both the impact the pregnancy and the kid was having on me as an individual, as an employee, as a leader. Um, and then I also saw the impact that that was having on the company because it is a burden in the beginning to the company. I, mean, I think we don't talk about it enough and it would be kind of uncouth to talk about really, but 
you know, I had to miss a lot of work. Um, I had really bad morning sickness with the second one. And, um, you know, the last trimester, I was just so tired. I don't know. I mean, I had to miss work. I wasn't as productive, la, la, la. Um, and then I took time off to be with the kids. And my I had a little bit of a NICU experience with the, with the second kid, which was horrible, but it was fine. But the point is, um, there was a impact to the business. And I remember from sitting in that lens, I'm like, wow, like definitely being a woman impact. Like we've had to work around the fact that I'm having a baby. Like we had to do that. Um, but then what was interesting is, um, I can't, I took the time though, because I really wanted to, and I came back three months later. So kind of knowing a little bit, I was, I felt indebted to the business a bit. What I recognized, um, when I came back was me being gone, first of all, was so important to the business. Like it forced everybody to elevate. And had I just been gone for a week or two, or had I been checking in a lot, like they never would have worked around me being gone. And them simply working around me being gone essentially meant that way more was a- was able to be handled by someone else that I was once handling. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, without even actively delegating it, like they just took it on and did fine. And so when I came back, I almost immediately went back to my usual cadence of like, okay, so let's see, I got my one-on-ones every you know week with my executives. And then I started saying, wait, why do I need to do weekly one-on-ones with my executives? Like that was taking up a whole day of time, basically. When I was gone for three months, I only talked to my chief of HR once every three, four weeks. She texted me when she needed me, but she handled everything else. My chief finance, like he updated me once a month with an email. I didn't need, so it sort of made me realize like, wait, no, going back to that old cadence actually isn't really necessary. I created a new cadence, which allowed them to do more and me to elevate more and elevate on top of the business. And then two months after I came back, we had a new innovation we were about to launch. And that was all me. It was all because I had the brain space and the... Um, and everybody else was doing that other work that I was like, oh shit, we need to innovate and fast. And I have an idea and let me push the team and la la la. And it was like 60 days after I came back, we had literally a can in hand. I'm not taking full credit for that because it was a huge team effort, but I definitely pushed it there. And I remember looking at that moment and thinking that would have never happened if I didn't take three months off. I know it's crazy to say, but it would have never happened. I wasn't capable to see the business from that perspective with the amount of work I've been doing. So I now, my coworker, Vanessa, is about to have a baby. And I just sent her an email being like, you would be doing us a disservice if you check in too much. You would be doing us a disservice. It's not just you. You're, you know, you need, we need to learn how to work without you and then come back and you're fucking baller, Vanessa. Like you can push the business in ways we we need you to, and you can't right now because you're overloaded with the whirlwind. So anyway, long story short is that helped. The second thing is you just, you just don't have time for BS anymore when you become a mom. Um, you know, you just, you don't have time. You don't value, you value efficiency a lot more. So I just became way better at communication and just being like, nope, don't have time for this. Don't have time for this. Like delegate and elevate. That's like, I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. That's hundred percent the job of a CEO. Um, and yeah, just like a lot more patient. I don't know. I just became way better, like grades wow. better. 
it just shows that you've been you became even more laser focused on what really matters, like both in your personal life and how your mom and also in business. So that's totally. that's amazing. I, I haven't heard anyone speak so eloquently about that. So I appreciate yeah. it. So I'm going to sure. close on one last question, although I can talk to you for hours, but wealth means <laughs> so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. So I would love to hear your perspective on what it means to you. Yeah. And it's changed. So I'll tell you very honestly right now, wealth, uh, yeah, to me, wealth is, 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 you know, first I, I want to make sure I have my health and my family's health and like that, you know, goes without saying is the most important thing. Um, but, um, you know, for me, what I'm after right now, and, and, and I hope, I hope people don't take this the wrong way. I'm not, um, qualifying it, but, um, you know, I'm looking to acquire enough, money for our family that we don't ever have to work again. We do because we choose to. Um, so that's what I'm after currently. That wasn't, that's not my own goal or anything like that. But to me, if I, if I hit that mark, I've really hit a mark of success for myself. Like I did that from nothing from $600. I'm after that. I got goosebumps. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm after that. Um, I want to acquire that level of wealth for our family so that my son's like, I, you know, I would never spoil them, but just so that they don't have to ever worry about that. Um, and, or maybe I can give it to someone else. I don't know what I would even do with the money. I don't want it to be flashy. I just yeah. want it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to acquire that for my family. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, but of course, wealth, you know, that would be nothing if I didn't have my health and my family. So, yeah, for sure. Health and family comes first. Um, but yeah, I'm not afraid to talk about money and women wanting more money. I think it's not, um, it's not talked about enough and there's a little bit of a stigma with like wanting money. Yeah. Um, How do you think we can change that? I don't know why. Talking about Just it. getting more. <laughs> getting more. Yes. Talking about it and getting more. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, like, you know, Yeah. Just talking about it, getting more, pushing yourself more, asking for it more, all that stuff, all the stuff that, um, like, I, I'll tell you this, as somebody who's in charge of a lot of dollars in the business, like, and where they go, I, I certainly don't look at a man versus a woman and decide that one gets a raise versus another based on their gender. For sure not. Guys ask me 10 times wow. more. Wow. 10 times, you know, I mean, at least, at least. So I just think, you know, we need to kind of get over the fact that like money doesn't equal evil. It's what you do with the money. <laughs> I could actually probably change the world in a way more impactful way with more money uh, than without that money. So like you can start to just build a healthier relationship, I think, with money overall. It doesn't, it's not a bad thing to have a lot of money. It could be a really good thing. It's what you do with the money that makes you a dick. Exactly. <laughs> if your values are in place, having a lot of money is a great thing. Right. So I feel my values are strong and I'm excited for, um, for that. But yeah, I think that, I think the solution for women is to build a stronger relationship with it, ask for it more, get comfortable with talking about it. Everybody wants it. Come on. I know you do, you know, I, and, and so we, and I don't, I don't know why we don't talk about it. It's kind of like guys do it all the time. They talk about business deals. They talk about how much they're making and women are just silent. So 
hopefully having these conversations will change it. And, you know, more money is just equals more freedom in your life. Like you were mentioning for your family, you know, doesn't mean you're not going to work and spoil your kids, but you'll live a different life. And just having that, I don't, it just, it's nice. Having money is nice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cause I want to do the things that like free, I don't know, like what I would do with my money is take all my best friends on a trip and we would have an amazing time. You know, like, so is that so bad? No, that's freaking awesome. I want to do that. Yeah. So um, I'm, on, I'm on my way. You are. You are. <laughs> I can't wait to watch it all. You're almost there. <laughs> I love it. I've been saying that for eight years. The first, no, I'm kidding. The first, and by the way, I didn't start with that goal. My first goal was, you know, just like get to 10 million in revenues uh, for the business. And maybe my second goal was like, um, you know, get into, get into whole foods, you know, like, so all your goals sort of change over time. Um, so that's, that's sort of like my current, my current one. Yeah. You know, there's actually something when I was researching you, uh, before the interview, you mentioned something that really resonated with me. You were saying early on, I think you had hired someone that you're paying six figures, but you guys, your salaries were still pretty low. And this was after you guys were doing well and you raised a little bit of money and you were saying, you know, you need to value yourself just like any other employee. And I've caught myself doing that, paying people more, you know, not really thinking about how to compensate myself. But I'd love to hear that story from you and, you know, how your thought process Mm. has changed. Yeah. I mean, that's another level of that confidence conversation that we had earlier. But um, yeah, so that individual in particular, um, by the way, I just like two months ago got to a place where I was the highest paid person in the company and it was eight years to get there. And it took so much confidence for me to to realize that I am a real CEO. I deserve that money. Everyone else gets that money as a CEO. Why not me? Like it was this very weirdly long and complicated journey that did not have to be because as soon as I put myself in the position and I made, you know, it was not a problem. You know, anyway, I guess my point is, this isn't something I just had to learn in the beginning. It's a constant journey. We talked about the constant journey. It, it is a constant journey, even still today. Um, it's not like I'm Mrs. Confidence over here. Um, so yeah, in the very beginning, the person we're talking about, yeah, like I remember when we had to hire them, they were so promising to us, going to offer so much to the business. It was almost like a, oh, we're going to like worship the person's ground that they walk on because they're so good at what they do. And I remember feeling so bad about, and that person, by the way, just said, this is, this is what I make. You know, it's $250,000 a year, period, like minimum. And to a tiny business, we were like, what? You know, like we can't even, that's like so much more than we make. Um, and he was like, yeah, I'm sorry. This is what it is. You know? Um, anyway, we felt so badly about it and had this, our own kind of emotional journey with it. Um, not even talking to our board or anything. We just decided to give ourselves a 50% pay cut to hire this guy. Just made us feel better. And I don't know why we did that. Nobody requested it from the board. It was our own thing. We were doing it because we wanted to save cash, la, la, la. But like in the end, you know, you also have to recognize like that's not, you know, that's that's not the right thing to do either for a business because now you're just kind of, your, your P&L isn't even correct either because you're paying a CEO like, 30 grand, which wouldn't really be the case if you were hiring somebody that's so at the end of the day, um, we learned over the years that that type of self, um, sort of 
imprisonment or self whatever was was not actually helpful to us or the business and nobody on the outside even cared. So yeah, I think um, valuing yourself, obviously it has to be consistent with the business. I mean, you can't pay yourself $250,000 a year if your business isn't making, you know, $250,000. So like it is, you know, you have to be a little bit in line with what the business is doing. But Remember that you as the founder are the lifeblood of the company and you deserve, you know, you deserve what you deserve. Um, so part of, I think, what helps is to talk to others about what they make, talk, talk to see what other companies make that size, understand what their CEOs and their different roles make. You're, you're going to start to feel a lot more comfortable asking for more when you recognize like, wait, I'm the only CEO I know, CEO I know that runs this type of business and makes... And I'm like in the bottom 10%. I mean, that's basically where I found myself. I'm like, what am I doing? Who, you know, nobody's going to come to you and say, you know what? Yasmin, I think you deserve more. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're not a CEO and you're working somewhere, right? Yes! I mean, they're not going to proactively yeah. come. You have to do the research online, talk to people and even yeah. negotiate your salary. But yeah, you're right. Yes. yes. You have to, you have to ask around. Like I got to that confidence level because I had a group of CEOs I started talking to and I just basically got, and I'm like, look, this is an embarrassing topic, but can you guys just tell me what you make? And like, I, I went around the room and I realized, oh my God, I make like a fourth, like a fourth to a fifth of what all of you make. And then I started asking more and I'm like, oh my gosh. So it started to make me realize like this, this is not, you know, fair, but it's no one's fault, but my own. I never, you know, I never put myself in that position and it really wasn't that difficult once I did. So, um, yeah, I would say the first step, if you feel you might be in that position is to really understand what people make in your role in other places. Um, and, and you'll know whether you're competitive or not. Absolutely. And I'm sure that's so helpful for a lot of people listening in today. Well, Dinah, I so appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. It was nice to talk to you as well. 